Thank you for tuning your hearts in for another episode of the Hearts Rise Up podcast. I'm Carol Chapman, your host, along with my co-hosts, Ann Sari and Conchetta Antonelli. We share our own personal experiences, tips, and strategies, along with powerful stories and compelling insights from guest interviews. We're here to inspire and empower your conscious evolution, help you tap into your inner wisdom and rise to your heart-centered higher self. Together, we can rise to a higher level of consciousness, an elevated state of being, and experience more love, joy, and freedom. Well, hello again, and welcome back. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Hearts Rise Up podcast. I'm Carol Chapman, your host, and I'm delighted to have a very special guest on the show today. Her name is Tezza Lord, and I must say you're in for a real treat. Tezza is a spirit author, artist, activist, a lifelong yoga and meditation practitioner, adventurer, and nature lover. She's also co-host of a Z-Lord spiritual podcast with Carter Lord, documenting their inner and outer adventures. Spreading love energy and joy all around the world is definitely Tezza's thing. She is author of four nonfiction books that document the transformation available to all of us. Her books are featured on the No BS Spiritual Book Club. Tezza's life experience is a testament to transformation. From a Caribbean she pirate to a public sharer of everything sacred, we are one is her language. Everywhere she looks, she sees, feels, touches, and interprets the sacred in the everyday. She knows that recovery from addiction is a great teacher, modern spirituality is environmentalism, and to heal the planet, we must begin with healing self. Tezza, welcome to the show. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here, and welcome to everybody who's listening. You are definitely a trailblazer, a sacred trailblazer, and I love your energy. When we first met, I knew immediately just how heart-centered you are and how you were the right guest for this show. I would love for you to share more about yourself and your life experience, and then we'll get into what you are bringing to the world today. Where would you like to start? Wow. Well, that's what motivated me to become an author because oh, once I start telling my amazing story, people's jaws start to drop. And I've even been accused of being a liar <laughs> because how can so much happen in one person's life? But that's just my life. I mean, it's just incredible. And when people hear all the things that I've done and had experiences with, I could be like a thousand-year-old person. <laughs> and still, I'm, I'm just ready for the next adventure. Like, I want to just give you little tidbits because I do encourage people to read my books, not because I want them to buy my books or anything. I mean, just get them from the library if you can. But they're such amazing stories. And they're not made up. And... I just finished my first novel, and it was so much fun to make something up because there are some things that we experience in life 
that seem unbelievable. And so we have to use devices that are today called magic realism or fiction even for things that actually transpire with us who have attuned our consciousness to be all-encompassing. We have no barriers. We have no shields. And we certainly do not numb it like I did. So my story begins with a very traumatic childhood. I basically ran away when I was about five years old. I started running away. I just felt like, what am I doing in this family? What am I doing with people who just don't get who I am? And okay, all of us who are into the mystical side of life say that, yes, we choose our family. Well, I've been trying to figure that one out. If anybody has an insight, please let me know, because I still haven't really figured it out, except it's made me stronger. Because, of course, they say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But I just got so alienated from what was happening to me as a child that I started running away physically. And then when I learned to, I ran away in my consciousness. For instance, I would do a million snow angels so that I became just transported by the motion. And I would twirl and twirl and twirl and twirl like the way kids tend to do, just not to have so much fun, but to get out of my life that I didn't feel comfortable in. And I taught myself how to faint by the time I was like in third grade. <laughs> that backfired when my sister failed to catch me, my older sister, but it, it's a technique. It's actually like self-hypnosis, but it ended not well with a bloody nose and so, and then, of course, when I discovered drugs and alcohol, it was like, I'm on, I'm on, just like, give it to me. And my transporting out of myself was mainly because I was so distressed with what was happening in my family situation. And now I know, of course, that it not is just the family. It could be karmic. It's something that I came into this existence with, and I have no blame of anybody or any certain thing that happened to me, even being raised in the Catholic Church and being abused by the nun that slapped me silly because I was in a trance. I got myself into a trance when I couldn't stop making the sign of the cross. It just felt so amazingly close to the Lord. I kept crossing myself. This was in like second grade. And the nun that I had just came up and slapped me because she thought I was being irreverent. But I wasn't. I was truly having a religious experience. So even as a child, I learned to pray. I learned to get deeply into the teachings that you are given in church. And that satisfied me until it didn't. <laughs> and I started looking for nirvana when I first heard about it. And I, I just heard about it by reading, really, The Prophet by Kalo Gubran. I started looking, 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 going in the woods and being by myself and under rocks and around trees and saying, where is Nirvana? Until, of course, many years later, when I finally found the right teacher, I learned Nirvana's within. Everything that I was looking for is right within me. And that took a lifetime. And many, 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 many experiments with 
really extreme things. Like I am a recovering addict, like you said in your introduction. I have been 40 years without drugs or alcohol of any sort, except, you know, a little prescription medicine here and there. And this truly is the state for me in which I have discovered all the truth and have gone really into the comfortable mode of accepting that this life that I have is extraordinary. And I feel very comfortable in my skin these days. So that doesn't tell you much about like the nuts and bolts of how I got there. But the four books will let you know (laughs) all the the details. (laughs) And we'll definitely include your books in our show notes so everyone can find them. Like, for instance, I can just give one little hint. I started my career as an artist being a botanical illustrator for Harvard University. And I worked with botanists who were studying drug plants, which are today called plant medicine, but we referred to them as shamanistic plants. And I know a great deal. And I have done a a lot of experimentation. And I owe it to really a lot of, you know, extreme measures that I took, which I wouldn't today because I am a sober person. But I explored my psyche and I actually experienced ego death through things like LSD and mescaline and psilocybin, and I never took ayahuasca, but I studied it. I did not take it because it was traditionally not an indigenous thing for the women to be taking it. And I honor extremely the ways of the indigenous. I'm very attuned to the indigenous people even today. So plant medicine is very precious to me, but I am purely a meditator for that connection with the divine And I was initiated into meditation when Maharishi first came to the United States. His mission, no, his missionaries came or whatever. So I was initiated into meditation in 68 in Cambridge, Massachusetts. From there, I just have had many adventures with different teachers, different paths, exploring different ways of connecting with just using my metaphysical organ, the mind, as my primary vehicle for the experience of the sacred. I love the term that you use to refer to yourself as a spirit activist. Can you share more about what that means for you and how it has blossomed in different ways in your life? Yes, I definitely am into using a mantra, the ancient mantra, Om Namah Shivaya. People have been using it for eons. It's spoken about in the Yoga Sutras, in all the great Upanishads, in all the great scriptures of yoga. I keep coming back to that. Even recently, I explored the type of meditation that James Doty talks about in his wonderful book, Into the Magic Shop. He's a neuroscientist, a neurosurgeon, and he works closely with the Dalai Lama, these days spreading compassion and love and and the importance of meditation in everyday life. But he gives a wonderful technique that is useful. I use that technique at times, and I use many different techniques. But basically, japa, which is the repetition of mantra during all your waking state, is my continuous practice. Names and terms and words are so important. What we call ourselves, even... Well, I had to correct you about my name. (laughs) 
Some people try to call me Teza or Truz or whatever, and I say, oh, no, no, no. Well, I prefer calling you Teza because I love how that resonates with me. That's a beautiful name. Teza is my spiritual name. I gave it to myself. It was not my christened name. It was not the name my parents gave me, but it evolved. And so that's another long story. But how I came to call myself a spirit activist was because I'm much more than an author or an artist, but yet I am those. Yes, it is. It's all about semantics today. And sometimes we need to find the right term that makes the most sense. Oh, yeah. At first, I called myself a spiritual activist because people who do politics, for instance, they call themselves political activists, or you can say an environmental activist. They always have that A-L at the end, which I think makes it an adverb. But then I thought to myself, no, I'm not calling myself spiritual. I am an activist, but I'm not saying, oh, I'm so spiritual. What I'm being an activist about is the sacred in the everyday and the mundane, how divine it is if we can all just get quiet enough and get rid of the clutter. So... I actually had to change my website because first it said spiritual activist. No, no, it really is spirit activist. And spirit is, of course, consciousness, the divine, you can call the creator. Some people even call spirit God, although the God word is pretty sensitive. People don't like to use the God word. And it's also highly charged. I mean, wars have been fought over it, and people have killed over it. And it's just, it means something to different people in different levels. So I avoid the God word. And it's funny because my last name is Lord. And so when people find out my last name is Lord, and I said, well, you can just call me goddess. That's okay. <laughs> I'm curious about what you mentioned, seeing the sacred in everything And that's what spirit lends itself to, in addition to consciousness. How do you help others see the ordinary as sacred? Well, a lot of people know what that is like if they have experienced it. So some people may get just a glimpse. And like if you go to the Grand Canyon, you can't go to the Grand Canyon and not feel the enormity of this experience here on Earth. Well, that's a great example. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, the Grand Canyon is breathtaking. And I've traveled a lot. When I first went to the Grand Canyon, I had already seen a good good portion of the world, but, you know, stuck up me. I had to go to the Middle East. I had to go to the Caribbean. I had to go to South America and Europe. But I forgot about the Grand Canyon. And so when my husband and I went to the Grand Canyon, I just thought, oh, my God, it was just breathtaking, and I was on my knees with reverence. So if a person just discovers the sacred or the divine through nature, that's a wonderful way, or through an experience like a book, and even today beautiful movies, or they meet a person who has a different vibration, something about them. Like I've had people ask me, what is it that you do? that makes you different. And and then I get to explain because they ask. And I'll just say that 
I experience everything as sacred and everything is an opportunity to have joy instead of like criticism and to experience the bliss of being alive rather than saying, oh, but it's not right. It's not perfect. My party's not in control. You know, there's so many things that people do to dampen the experience of, of how incredible it is just to be alive. So I think that I spread that joy by writing and arting and talking and, and even among my friends. I mean, but, you know, some people resist. I've had old friends say, you know, you really get on my nerves. They don't want to hear it. You pass the gin, <laughs> you know. They'd, they'd really rather just be in their little numb state or whatever. And that's okay. Yeah, people just get into these conditioned patterns and automatic responses. As you're interacting with the same people in your life, you operate on almost on autopilot with them. And we're all experiencing these conditioned patterns, and, and people really waste their energy with so many negative thoughts. Absolutely. Because really, every thought counts. Why do people get stuck in such negative patterns and energy? I do my best to avoid negativity at all costs. I see it on the news, the TV. I hear others speaking negatively. And even when I'm in discussion, I do everything I can to just shift the conversation when it goes negative. Yeah. Because negative thoughts really just don't serve us. They don't bring us happiness at all. Absolutely. Pessimism just does not serve humanity. But some people are so addicted to their fears, their anger, that they really are not conscious about the fact that they are in this negative state. Yeah, I think it's interesting. One of the things I noticed about you in our discussions is that you encourage people to turn fear into love. And you mentioned that a few moments ago. Share more insights that you have about turning fear into love. Well, it's pretty much about being able to realize that all of life has to do with our decisions, our choices. For instance, when you get sober, you don't just all of a sudden wake up one day when you're an addict and say, oh, today I think I'll stop, you know, getting inebriated and getting numbed up. No, you classically have to have something terrible happen. They call it a bottom. And then you come to the day when you realize you get some help now they have this, this wonderful 12-step program that's been around since the 50s. And people like me are given a second chance in life rather than just being written off by society or killed on the road or however we do ourselves in by our addictions. And then you come to get some a clarity about what addiction is whether you're addicted to an inebriating substance or addicted to anger, it's an addiction, whatever it is. And until people realize that they have a choice, that they are the ones who have chosen to be in that state of, of being addicted to fear, where they could choose to say, oh, I'm going to be addicted to love, because you're either in the state of fear or you're in the state of love. There's no in-between. And that's a very big day. It's almost like it's the aha moment. You talk about the aha moment. 
when somebody realizes, you mean I have a choice? It's not because my father beat the crap out of me when I was a kid and I'm destined to be a miserable SOB. No, everybody has a choice to completely turn their lives around every single moment of the day. And uh, so when you first have this awareness with addiction, the way it was taught to me by my guides, every decision you make, every choice you make is either taking you toward a drug or a drink or away. It's that simple. And so once you realize that you don't have this craving for drugs or alcohol anymore, you can apply that same magical energy that choice is about because all this life is a choice. So you can either say, this choice is taking me toward love or it's taking me toward fear. And it's, it's, it's that simple. Now, yes, there might be shades in between and to get used to the, the fact that it's, it really is that simple. It sounds dumb that it's so simple, but you can make complicated things simple. <laughs> yes, that reminds me of someone I know that focuses on simplicity Everything can be and should be simplified. Yeah, it's like oneness, for instance. The, the thought of being connected to all. I mean, that sounds, wow, that's really, that's an amazing thing if you think about it. But how could it be that simple? Well, when you experience it, it is that simple. It is actually a fact. And science is proving it. And, you know, the molecular physicists and all the quantum theorists are all guaranteeing this, this unity consciousness is a reality. And that we are all just vibrating atoms. <laughs> now, some of us may have more atoms, like a human being would have a few more atoms than a little tiny worm or a toad, but we're still all vibrating atoms. And... The fact that we're an animal, a mammal, supposedly at the at the top of the food chain, really doesn't make that much difference. We have much more in common with a tree or a, another animal than we do with, you know, than we used to think. We have our DNA is so similar. So science is catching up with spirituality. It's really wonderful. I'm curious, too. You're a great proponent of nature and animals and what they can teach us. What have you learned? Well, nature is the ultimate of teachers. The great mother of the universe is nature. I wear this necklace around my neck for Pachamama, who was the Incan goddess of nature, Pachamama. And it's very symbolic with the, the meaning of it. Yeah, it's just from the streets of you know Machu Picchu, where I got this necklace from a street vendor made out of black onyx. But nature is the essence of consciousness. So the, if you look at an animal the way an animal is, like when an animal gets sick, what does it do? It goes to sleep. It doesn't get all crazy and hysterical and, and start crying or anything. It'll just curl up in its little lair or den or, or straw and just lie there and wait for the sickness to go through it. It's very wise. And other animals, they just have this harmony 
with their environment, with themselves. And so you can take any single animal and learn from it. My book, Hybrid Vigor, is what I have learned personally from observing animals and having interactions with them, specifically dolphins, calling in a pod of dolphins hot silently, reaching out to them using my mantra, Om Namah Shivaya, and my experience with birds, like being so peaceful in a meditative state that one day I had this little bird just land on top of my head, <laughs> feeling its little feet walking up there because it felt so safe. And I thought, well, that's odd. And I just felt it. It felt so amazing to be connected to another life form that ordinarily you, didn't, you never feel a little bird walking on top of your head. That's beautiful. Yeah. And the next day I went to the same place and was doing a similar deep meditation and the little bird returned. Now, of course, I was in a sanctuary. I was in a very sacred place, a yogic ashram, where the birds and all creatures felt safe. They could feel the energy. Animals feel the energy much more than we do because they don't have at least such big egos. <laughs> I think some animals might have egos, if, especially if they've been raised by, you know, egomaniac um, owners or companions, whatever you call them. <laughs> yes, they may have that tendency for sure. Yeah. I'm curious, how do people take the time from their busy life to experience nature? Many people don't take the opportunity, including me, I, but I'm doing a much better job of it these days. Well, they don't even have to think about nature as being this big, wide experience like the Grand Canyon. The air we breathe is nature. The oxygen that we, our lungs crave that we must have to function is part of nature. It's molecularly connected to every single bit of experience on this planet. So the easiest way to connect with nature or any form of consciousness that will bring you to a higher, more comfortable place than pain or fear is by tuning into the breath. And that's, um, I have a YouTube channel. I give a lot of hints. I call them mind stillers. I put it up pretty regularly so that people have a variety so they can experience this stilling of the monkey mind, the crazy, incessant, rational thinking. So I can't do this. I can't do this. What's a waste of time? I should be making money. Just that's that's what is detrimental to our human experience. When our own mind, our own mind, is our worst enemy or our best friend. Yeah, especially if we let it run rampant. Yes, I love the term that you use, mind stillers, and how you helped others through your YouTube channel, to learn to still the mind. That's the easiest way. There's another term that you refer to. There are so many great ones that you've had, but this one was thought seeds. Share your perspective on that. That's a great term. Well, you had said earlier that every thought counts. And so when, when a person realizes, really, every thought counts? I mean, I can't just like, sneak in a little bit of like, I hate that girl, I hate that guy, I hate that president. Can't just have a little bit of resentment and rage. 
No, because each one of our thoughts has a vibration. And if I wanted to pick up a pencil, first I have to have the thought. It starts in the mind. I can't just pick up the pencil without having had originally something clicking, you know, the interstices of our brain. That's just the way it works physiologically. So if we're starting with a little line game, oh, I really want to get into like feeling creepy or scared or, you know, some movies that bring out like fear on purpose because they're murder mysteries or rape. I mean, they're terrible what they do with our mind. If we think we can indulge in that stuff without having to pay the consequences of it generating bigger fears, bigger, you know, blocks in our subconscious, maybe it'll come as a dream. Maybe it'll come as a, just a, a bigger dose of insecurity. That's how a thought can generate into a bigger thing. It's a seed. So if we are watching our thoughts, I love that phrase, watch, watch your thoughts, watch your thoughts, watch your thoughts. Because if you're really watching them scrupulously and you see something coming up, you can say, okay, I'm not going to think about that. You know, you, just, you can shake your head and, you know, make it go out or you bring in another thought on top of it to reverse it. That's why I love Japa, mantra repetitions, because I had really OCD like crazy when I first came into the light as opposed to the darkness. So the thought seeds, I'm actually using them a lot to explain how we can heal the earth in my latest book, because my, my book, my novel. What is the title of that latest book? Well, I don't think I should tell it yet. That's right. It's not published yet. Yeah, you have to guard these things. It's a beautiful title. I might have t told you in private, but... Okay, no worries. So I can talk about the story, but the title, somebody might steal. I've, you know, as a jewelry designer, once upon a time, I've had people, you know, just take my jewelry design. So I'm kind of like secretly holding onto this title because it's a credible one. But thought seeds are important in my book because take, for instance, we were all want to help the, heal the earth. We're all environmentally conscious now. But we all can't run out and join Greenpeace or the Sea Shepherd, you know, throw our bodies in front of the bulldozers down in the Amazon. We can't do all that. But what we can do is send out our loving thoughts of protecting the Earth's environment. And we can put generating light around the whole entire planet as, as a healing method, almost like doing Reiki, Reiki big time around the planet. That's a practical way of using a thought seed because it's our own thought. But if everybody practiced this, the whole energy of this planet would definitely change. It would be on a different plane. How does that play into another term that you use called modern spirituality? Well, modern spirituality is environmentalism. If anybody wants to be more enlightened, which means to be happier, if anybody wants to be a little bit happier than being miserable, then they will somehow get into taking the advice from spiritual people before them, either reading books or podcasts like this or taking steps. But you 
we who are in the spiritual world, who are dedicated to this revolution of spiritualizing all of humanity, one person at a time, it's like an army, an army of love, I call it, an army of the love of light. We are concerned about the planet more than just our own happiness. We don't get spiritual just to say, oh boy, I'm so happy. No, we get spiritual so that we can do the work to send out those thought seeds and help heal the planet, even while we're sitting in our living room, still in lockdown from pandemic, if that happens again. But right now, we're not. But we can do all sorts of environmental work by being attuned to what the energy is needed to, to reverse like, you know, industrialization and, and people who are just, you know, material, they use up too much stuff. I mean, people are not conscious about... So much consumption. Consumption, right? Consumption is big time. Yeah, and if more people were focused on conservation, we might see more healing in the world, our planet, and ourselves. Healing is greatly needed right now. Well, it's that emptiness that people feel, that spiritual emptiness that drugs and alcohol fill and going shopping fills, and doing things that are not necessary, that they think fills that need. But the only thing that will really satisfy that yearning inside, that emptiness, is to become attuned to the interconnectedness of all of us, our energy, the oneness. Beautiful. Anything else that you would like to share about your life experience, something you haven't shared with others? Well, gosh, there's so much. Well, we were talking about plant medicines. I think that's pretty pretty interesting. Did we talk about that much? Not a whole lot. You were just saying that you were exposed to it when you were at the botanical position at Harvard. I have deep respect for the plant medicine tribe of today because I was probably a pioneer back in the 60s, early 70s of doing botanical work that I was involved with, earth sciences and geologists and ethnobotanists and shamanic investigations, you know, done under the auspices of research. I mean, I was even a proponent of Leary's and uh, Baba Ramdas, who was then Richard Alpert, using LSD specifically for the purpose of experiencing ego death, not to have a party, not to go out and you know, go to a rave, but to to kill inside of us the demons that keep us from experiencing the oneness that is available. And so probably everybody knows the story of Richard Alpert. He went to India with all this LSD, and he came back as Baba Ramdas saying, you don't need to do the drugs. <laughs> Meditation is really the coolest way to maintain that state It really is. Meditation, that's my go-to. Yeah. So the plant medicine for me, as I was saying earlier, I was a hard nut to crack, whether it was karmic or because of the family, whatever. I don't, you know, I love my parents. They're both passed away now, and I was at their passing over. I helped them pass over to the next realm. There's a a great deal of love and respect, but yet I didn't get the spiritual guidance that I craved. They thought I was insane. (laughs) They weren't able to give it, and they weren't able to give you what they needed. 
hopefully you got other things and maybe you were what they needed. It was symbiotic. It was very nice. So along came plant medicines when I actually was at the point in my life, just around 18, 19, when I thought I was insane because I had been told I was insane growing up and I never was encouraged to believe that this mystical connection that I was just born with was a reality. And so I I was really ready to just knock on the you know the door of the local sanitarium in Cambridge where I was going to school and working at that time. But then I I started taking plant medicine uh, under these conditions of wanting to experience ego death, which is the, the gateway to experiencing oneness and unity consciousness. And so I did. And for me, it was a necessary part of my story. But yet, because I have an addicted nature, <laughs> it didn't stop with just, oh, that was, that was cool. I think now I'll just meditate all day. And even after I received initiation into meditation when I was 18 and started doing yoga uh, because I have scoliosis and really it saved my physical from the pain and suffering that I had, I still wasn't ready to stop being a party person. I had this need to just thumb my nose at uh, the opportunities that were coming my way. And so it's a tricky thing when people decide to use something outside of your own being because you can get sucked in to the cycle of using too much. Now, of course, ever since Michael Pollan's book, Change Your Mind, where he talks in depth about microdosing, and he himself was the guinea pig, he and his wife had, had, had never taken any psychedelics, really. It was so beautiful, the way he just threw himself in as the guinea pig. And I thought it was beautiful the way he introduced that topic to the world, because a lot of people need it. A lot of people are so stuck in the rut of, Fear, fear, fear. They can't see that there's a door opening, the portal into the vastness, into the unbelievable, never-ending expansion of, of perception of, of a higher sort than fear gives you. So, yes, I think some people need to have a reset. They need to take plant medicine. But whenever you go up, you must come down. And the nice thing about meditation when you have a good teacher who can get you to that place, and then you say to yourself, wow, I really want that. I like it. And then you know what it's about because you've had the experience. You can't even really read a story and, and get the experience. You have to have the experience. And then you say, what can I do to maintain it? And for me, the best way is not plant medicine, but to have that oneness, that presence, as Eckhart Tolle calls it, or the meditative insight, whichever way it works. Some people don't meditate. They just have that ability to expand their consciousness without meditation. And what advice would you offer to others right now looking to expand their consciousness? Where would they start? Where would they start? Well... Of course, I always think my stuff is fantastic. I mean, I love my 
work. I love my paintings. I have so many tools that I offer people. So I don't want to start saying other teachers. I am not a teacher. I'm just an experiencer. I have happily experienced. And as an artist, it's my art form to share it. I do not call myself a teacher, but yet I am a certified yoga teacher. And I have taught many, many people how to still their minds. So I myself have a lot of tools up on SoundCloud, for instance. I have little sound bites, tiny little sound bites that are the mind stillers. And so you can even just go to SoundCloud and dot com and slash Tezza, I think there's dash in there, Tezza, T-E-Z-A, dash, Lord. So those are little tiny sound bites. And then all on my YouTube channel, I have wonderful mind stillers that satisfy every single aspect of the questions that arise when you are a spiritual journeyer. Oh, I love that term. I don't want to say seeker because what are we seeking? Everything's right within us. Oh, wow. That's so profound. (laughs) You've said so many profound things. Spiritual journey, not spiritual seeker. We're spiritual experiencers. I mean, the world is having a revolution right now. My meditation teacher, who will remain nameless because it's just her request, because people... Once they find a really great thing, they tend to abuse it, over-abuse it, overuse it. But we call it a meditation revolution because it's my duty. Once I attain this connection to oneness, to the unity consciousness that is permeating the whole universe, not just Earth, not just humanity, it's all throughout existence. It is consciousness. It is my duty in writing and you know, however I can with the spoken word, to spread it, to share it. And I do that through art and writing and, you know, however I can with the spoken word. Tessa, I want to thank you so much for sharing all of this wisdom that you have acquired through your spiritual journey. How can others find out more about you? Well, I wanted to tell everybody that I was encouraged. I was encouraged by... Uh, reading your information for our meeting today and you said what are there any free offers and I thought wow what a cool thing I want to make an offer to anybody who's listening if the first five people who write me and say they want one of my books I will send a gift copy and my email is tezalord at gmail.com I have, like you know, we've said, four books, and so you can make a request about which one you would like. But I think it's really great to spread joy, to spread love. And I don't feel like recommending any other. I mean, if people want to hear the 10 books that I consider to be implemental for me being who I am today, that's the No BS Spiritual Book Club that you mentioned earlier. And um, it's a wonderful way of... Of, for people who are the spiritual explorers, the spiritual, like, you know, soul knots. <laughs> they talk about the 10 books that really made a difference in their lives. Taza, I want to thank you so much for being here. And I'd love for you to share one final parting comment. Love is the weapon of mass illumination. And that's a motto of mine that came to me when I did my book, We are one. And it has become the theme of my work 
since then. It just it's just so fitting because love is not just this cute little bunny. It can also be a fierce eradication of evil. And love is a weapon that we can use to ignite the urgency and the immediacy and the necessity of mass illumination right here, right now. That is so beautiful, so true, and so profound. Yeah. I just want to thank you for sharing all of your inner wisdom, your life experience, your books, and we'll be sure to include all of this in our show notes, your website at tezalord.com, your social channels, and links to your books. Great. Thank you for being with us today. My pleasure. It's been really good. Bye-bye, everybody. Well, that's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, keep rising up. Bye for now. We hope today's show helped to bring a bit more joy and happiness into your heart. We hope it inspired you to unleash your inner power and rise up to your best and loving heart-centered highest self. We'd be grateful if you'd leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews are important to spreading this valuable message. We'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast and share the show with others. Visit heartsriseup.com for heart-centered courses, guided meditations, and our popular notes from your higher self. Until next time, keep rising up and may all that you love thrive.